This is lesson 15, and we're in uh, Judges chapter 16, the closing chapter in the life of Samson. As I was preparing for this, I, I, I said to myself, there is no way I can gild this lily. And, and in fact, I came to the conclusion there isn't even a lily to gild. This, this is really a sad, sad uh, story and a tragic end with one exception. And I guess I want to start there because if there is a bright spot in all of this, then it's going to come to us from the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 11. You're familiar with that particular uh, account, but it goes through the various men and women in the hall of faith. And the writer says this beginning at Hebrews 11 verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Through faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Here's the one I think is critical. Gained strength in weakness became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. Now, it's awfully hard. I I mean, if we weren't told that Samson was in the hall of faith, I don't think most of us would be preparing a seat for him in the kingdom. You know, we just look, he just looks like a pagan. Some, I believe, have concluded that he was, uh, he came to faith earlier in his life I don't see particularly any evidence of that. The way I read Hebrews chapter 11 is he was in the hall of faith. And so the question is, if that's referring to him when it says received strength in weakness, then when was that so? My inclination is to say it was so when he was the weakest. And that is when he stood between those pillars weakened and and blinded and that that really is the moment of his conversion i think when we get into the text there are some other hints that that may be the case as well but i have to tell you that to begin with because frankly otherwise this story is a very very bleak uh, account but he is one of those instances it seems to me where you have a midnight conversion and uh From the text in Hebrews, it really seems to have worked. You remember in chapter 13 that we were uh, told about the coming birth of Samson, uh, that is, Manoah and his wife were told by the angel of the Lord he was going to be a supernaturally born child because his mother was barren, and uh, he was going to be a Nazarite, actually not only from birth, but from before birth, we would say from conception, he was going to be a Nazarite, and therefore his mother needed to observe the Nazarite stipulations, as did he once uh, he was born. And then in chapters 14 and 15, uh, in spite of all of that great introduction that we get in chapter 13, in spite of all of our high hopes we may have for him, (laughs) things just go downhill very quickly. He wants a Philistine wife, not an Israelite wife. And that, contrary to the desires and the 
and the efforts of his parents to change his mind. He's going down to, to uh, Timna to check her out. And uh, you remember that's when he encounters the lion. Uh, the spirit comes mightily upon him. He tears the lion apart, casts it aside. And on a subsequent trip, then he comes to investigate the carcass, which no Nazarite should be doing. And he discovers that there is a, a beehive and honey within the carcass. He eats from that honey and gives to his parents and doesn't bother to mention that fact to them. And then in the process of the wedding ceremony, he has 30 uh, renta guests, uh, Philistine guests that have been brought into the party. And he wants to liven up the party, so he gives them a riddle. And that riddle pertains to the lion and the honey that is found within. Uh, he was supposed to supply them with 30 garments, a garment each, if, if, uh, if they discovered the meaning of it. And they were to give 30 garments to him if they could not. They put the pressure on his wife. She finally uh, got the... Uh, the story out of him, and then, of course, Samson, in his anger, went and killed 30 Philistines at Ascalon and got the uh, outfits and presented them. That led to, uh, to further hostilities, as you know. He discovers when he comes back with a young goat to, to make a romance with his, with his wife, uh, he discovers that his wife is now the wife of his best man. And, uh, and so he sets fire to the fields, uh, you know, of the Philistines by those uh, 300 foxes tied tail to tail with a torch between. And uh, not only the uh, wheat harvest, but also the, uh, the, the grapes and the uh, olive trees are destroyed in the process. That brings the Philistines. He kills a batch of those. Then they seek him out. And, and the, the, the strange and the troubling part is the men of Judah come with 3,000 people in force, not to join him in their battle with the Philistines, but to turn him over to the Philistines. They agree not to kill him. They tie his hands with two new ropes. And, uh, and then when they turn him over, you know, the Spirit of God comes upon him. He breaks the ropes and he kills a thousand with the jawbone of an ass. And, uh, and so it does not uh, end well for the Philistines. And then there's the story of him crying out to God for water, and that, that uh, request is met by God. That brings us to uh, Judges chapter uh, 16. And I want to look at the, uh, the particulars of this and then ask us the question, what is there that this has to say to Israel, and what does this have to say uh, to us? So first of all, we have that story of Samson going to Gaza. Three verses. Very interesting, is it not? Three verses which talk about him coming to Gaza. Now, Gaza is, is going to be a, a, a town in the far south and west, so he is way deep into Philistine territory. This is not a border town where he can sneak back across the border quickly. So it is a bold act on his part. And uh, it would probably be good for us to know that Gaza is one of the most ancient of cities. It's on the trade route that would, that would go from Syria down to Egypt. So it is a major city. And the word Gaza means strong. Now, if it is a, lo- if it is a large city, an old city, on a major commercial route, and its name is strong, 
I think one could, could conclude with a fair bit of confidence that it was well fortified. And, and therefore, I think one could conclude that the city gates uh, would not be little wimpy gates like we would see down the back alleys we're driving that are made out of cedar and you could kick them down, right? They're going to be pretty hefty gates. We know from what we've already seen that the only way to destroy people behind city gates like that was to either burn them out or do something, but you didn't, you didn't remove those gates. Uh, you could build a rampart up against the wall so that you would come up and over the wall, but the gates were solid. So Gaza was this uh, very, very uh, strong city. When he comes to the city, it's very quick. He sees a prostitute and he goes into her. There isn't any, any hesitation. There isn't any delay. And, uh, and you know that when uh, the word gets out that Samson's in town, the people of Gaza form a posse and they're going to they're gonna surround the gate. And when he comes out, they're going to kill him. Kill him is what they say. That's their intent. You remember that they expect that he is going to wait and spend the entire night and come out in the morning, so they've decided to take it easy until the morning light comes. That's when they're going to do business with Samson, and they're going to do him in. Samson gets up at midnight and decides to leave early. And when he does, he comes to the city gates that are locked, and he lifts those things up. Now, if you can think about this, I, I can't even imagine a piece of hydraulic equipment that would be able to lift those up that easily. But you've got these big posts that, that, that are, the hinges would be attached to for these gates and, and heavy iron bars because you're protecting against an onslaught of the enemy. He picks those things up and he carries them out, the text tells us, until he puts them on a hill that faces Hebron. Now, there are various ways of interpreting that. But I got to tell you, I couldn't carry those things five feet, let alone get them out of the ground. So however far it was, he leaves them now in a very awkward and vulnerable uh, situation. So here's some observations. We talked about Gaza and its size. Surely this text tells us something about the moral state of, of uh, Samson. Would you not agree? It's going downhill and it's going downhill fast. Here is a guy who, in, in our previous chapters, chapter 14 and chapter 15, in the process of securing a wife, granted he abandoned the Israelite um, value system and process for obtaining a wife. His parents said, wouldn't you, wouldn't you be better off to get an Israelite wife? He chooses not to do that. But when he gets his Philistine wife, he gets her in a Philistine way. My point to all of that is that even then, Philistines waited for sex. Philistines waited. I say that because somehow that just seems so foreign, literally, to us today, does it not? People waiting until marriage. He waits in a Philistine system to consummate that marriage, and a fairly lengthy period of time passes. The problem with that is that the marriage never was consummated. And that was because he lost his temper uh, and killed the 30 uh, Philistines in Ascalon and, and then went home in a huff. And you remember then he comes back and the father of the bride says, well, I thought 
she didn't want her. I gave her away. But here's another one. You can have her. And, and uh, so he never actually was able to consummate that marriage. He was burned along with her father. And uh, all of that's to say, he must have come to the conclusion, waiting for sex in marriage isn't worth it. And so when we come to him in chapter 16, he's not waiting. He's ready. And he's not going to get himself a wife. What happens after that in verses 4 and following with Delilah is he now decides that he doesn't need to marry. He can just live with somebody. I mean, does that sound like today? The values, are, or it seems to me, of, of this text are just very similar to our own. About the, the spirit, one of the things that we saw earlier on is that the spirit initially would come with great power upon uh, Samson. And virtually every time somebody died, would you not agree? When the spirit came on, you know, the lion died, whatever, but something happened and people died. He was a killing machine and the spirit's power was in, in great part to empower him to destroy Philistines so that the Israelites could be free of their domination. What's interesting here is that we are not told the spirit came powerfully upon him. And frankly, would it not be rather awkward? I mean, can you imagine? It says, he saw a good-looking harlot. He, he, uh, he made his relationship with her, and then the Spirit came mightily upon him, and he lifted the gates. Somehow <laughs> that just doesn't seem to fit. And, and it seems to me that what's happened is that the Spirit of God has come to sort of normally reside. In other words, it doesn't appear to me that Samson's power comes and goes until his haircut. And then it goes. But it appears to me the Spirit's power is there. And therefore, Samson feels free to utilize it any way he wants. So if I may play on words, he prostitutes the power of the Spirit to pursue his own fleshly lusts. Isn't it interesting? He, he, he relates to a prostitute, but in a sense, he is one because he abuses that which God has given to him for noble purposes, and he does it simply to get out of a bind that he's put himself into. No casualties. So it isn't as though victory has been accomplished in this, but something has happened, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The Philistine posse has surrounded the gates. They are they are perched and poised to arrest and to kill. Now take him and keep him and put him in a, in a, in a wheat grinding facility, but to kill him. It, it does seem to me that the, the, the stories that we see about the gates and the guards uh, are sometimes a little bit inclined to whittle away at the miraculous. In other words, wouldn't it be easier to talk about the city gates just going a little ways out of town than 40 miles I actually went through Google Earth and, and just started in Gaza. And if you head toward Hebron, you're two-thirds of the way to the Dead Sea to get there from a, from a town that is virtually on the coast of the Mediterranean. That's a long hike, folks. We would be huffing and puffing to walk it. But can you imagine what he's doing with these. Now, I don't know whether he made it all the way to that mountain that was right by Herman or whether it was, it was only a five-mile hike, whatever it was. It was huge. 
It was huge. But I don't want to minimize the fact that this is a great and powerful miracle and it's God at work here. So I don't have to make it light duty so I feel better about what Samson is said to do. It is a little puzzling, is it not, that the guards somehow who have surrounded the city are an intent on killing him don't do so? Now, one of the attempts is, is uh, an effort to explain how the, the gates of a city worked and that there were guard stations and so on. And, and the theory was that they thought he wouldn't come out until morning, and so they kind of closed the doors and, and, and sort of shut themselves in. i got to tell you, I cannot imagine what it sounds like to hoist a city gate out of the earth and haul it off. But, folks, it's going to be noisy. It is going to be noisy. And, and so it seems to me that there must have been something supernatural in all this, that God was engaged in more than just giving Samson a supercharger. It seems to me that the Spirit of God may somehow have put these boys into a deep sleep, and we've seen it before in Scripture. That's not, that's not rare or, or unusual, and that, to me, seems to be what may have happened. Now, that brings us to almost to the story of Samson and Delilah. But the reason why many people sort of slip by this story is, one, it's kind of a dirty story. I mean, it's not really one you want to talk about a lot. And secondly, people aren't really quite sure how the story of, of this uh, prostitute in, in uh, Gaza relates to the story of Samson and Delilah. I'd like to make a couple of suggestions. One... It's telling us about the downward spiral. And so when we find him pursuing marriage in chapter 14, and here he's simply living with a woman in chapter 16, we can see how he's gotten to that kind of low place in his life. It seems to me that it's an example of divine protection. In other words, humanly speaking, he would have died there. Now, if those guards had been on the alert... I think there would be nothing easier than catching a guy with the city gates on his back. <laughs> Don't you think? If you were going to get Samson any time, I'd get him with the gates on his back because he's kind of occupied doing other things. But God has somehow intervened to preserve the life of Samson as rotten as his conduct is. It is not God's time for Samson to die. And so I believe he's been divinely preserved and protected. The story reveals Samson's what I would call arrogance. Now, you need to understand, nobody has ever really laid a hand on Samson in the sense of harming him. Granted, he, he had the ropes tied around his, his hands, uh, two ropes, two new ropes. But nobody ever really hurt him, and certainly nobody ever killed him. Every time, Samson has come out ahead. It seems to me that the more this happens, the more arrogant Samson gets. And, and, and he sees himself now as virtually invincible, which I believe is one of the keys to the story with he and Delilah. He thinks he cannot be killed. He's indestructible. And part of that is because, I'd say a large part of it, all of it is because of divine protection, but he somehow sees that as his, as something he possesses that can't be taken from him. And so he, he's not only uh, arrogant, but I think he's even more arrogant as a result of this. It's sort of, ha ha, you tried to get me. I mean, a whole city surrounds you to take you captive, and you walk away not only free, but with the city gates on your back. That's doing pretty well. And he was telling himself about it quite a lot. 
I think it foreshadows things to come. What do we know about the city gates? Well, we know that's where the, the wise, the important men, the leaders uh, were and met and did, their, uh, did business with one another, had uh, covenants and whatever. We also know that the city gates were the place of, of vulnerability and also protection. That is, everybody that went into and out of a fortified city went through the city gates, right? If now Samson has taken the city whose name is strong, he has gone in and single-handedly he has come away not only free and alive, but with their city gates on his back. I mean, think about it. Let's just suppose that he actually carried those 40 miles or 35 miles or whatever it is up so far as he did. Can you imagine what it must have been like in our day to get those gates back and put them in place? They'd have Sam driving the truck. He'd be driving the semi. They'd load that up. They'd get a big old crane and they'd lift those things onto that truck and they'd haul it back. It would be weeks before those gates would be back in place. And all the time those gates were down, the city's vulnerable. Is that not right? And don't you think that maybe that's the way it is? That, that God has basically been saying, when you mess with me, I can make you vulnerable. And, and they will be. And, and in that sense, it's, it's prophetic of what's going to happen when they're thinking how safe they are in that place where they are gathered together to humiliate Samson and worship Dagon, they're not safe at all. City gates may be prophetic of that. Here's the other one. It intensifies the Philistines' commitment and desire to capture Samson. It intensifies their desire. You humiliate your enemy, and they're going to want to get back. Is that not right? In other words, he not only gets away, he gets away in a way that humbles and humiliates that entire city. How in the world could one man do this much damage and get away? And here's the interesting part, folks. They purposed to kill him. Isn't that what the text says? When they came to Gaza and, and surrounded that city gate, they intended to kill him. What do they intend to do now? humiliate him. They're not going to let him die. They're going to keep him alive. They're not just going to find him and when they get his hair cut, run a spear through him and it's all over. They are going to make this fellow pay. And they are going to, they're going to rub his face in all of this to where they have gotten their honor back. So isn't it interesting that God changes their disposition towards Samson to prepare for the event that's going to happen when Samson's going to be in that temple being humiliated. That's the scene that God's going to use to bring judgment, the ultimate judgment upon the Philistines. Okay, let's move on to Samson and Delilah. Boy meets girl. Well, she's from the Valley of Sorek. That would be north and east, uh, not, not as close to the Mediterranean Sea and, and farther north, closer to the border. Of, uh, of Israel, um, but it's still within Philistine territory. And by the way, the text says that he loved her. And she says, you know, how could you say you love me? I know I pick on this. The word, folks, is agapao. So whenever somebody says to you, the word agapao always means 
No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Sometimes, maybe most of the times. But here, this is not divine love, friends. It is not. He's, uh, it's, it's not even probably worthy of a phileo status, but that's the word that's used. All right, so he loves her, but she loves money. There's no, no, so far as I can see, reciprocity in the sense that she has a great love for him. And now the five Philistine lords come and say, we're going to pay you will. We're going to pay you in silver. We want to know what the secret is. And then when you let us know, you get paid. And the money meant more than that big hunk of burning love. Now, when you look at Samson's secret, you know, it seems to me that there's an assumption here that we just have to, we have to come to terms with. Everybody, I think, when you're reading this story, you know, about all of these various ways that Samson answers, three ways he tells her uh, that he'll lose his strength, none of which are true, until he finally empties uh, his, uh, bears his heart to her in, in telling her the truth. But all of us, I think, read the story and we're saying, or our children as we read that story in those Bible story books are saying, don't do it, Samson, don't do it. Aren't we? Now, let's just back up a step and ask ourselves, why should he keep it a secret? Why should Samson keep the the, the fact that he is a Nazarite, that he serves and is set apart for God, why should he keep it a secret? See, when you go back and you look at at, at that initial wedding uh, um, situation, Samson had a practice of not telling things he should have. He never told his parents about the lion that he killed, thereby defiling himself, which had to send him back home to get cleansed ceremonially. He never bothered to tell his parents about the fact that he got the honey out of the carcass of a dead animal. And therefore, when he gave them the honey, he defiled them. So what I'm saying is this. The fact that Samson keeps the secret doesn't mean it's right. Now, if you look at the Philistines, this is really about God. And that's what we see finally in the end. The Philistines are right about one thing. This is about God. Now, they thought it was about their God, Dagon. And they're going to get corrected on that point. It's really about the God of Israel. But Samson has been strangely silent about the fact that he is really uh, operating under the power of God to uh, carry out the purposes of God. Let me give you uh, an example from another deliverer who was not hesitant to tell those involved what the spiritual issues were. Think about David and Goliath. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, when he first comes across the scene and he sees how the Goliath is blaspheming the God of Israel, David says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? Now, come down to verse 45. This is when David is speaking to Goliath. He says to him, 
You are coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I am coming against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's armies, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, cut off your head. This day I will give the corpses of the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land. Then all the land will realize that Israel has a God. Why wasn't Samson saying that? See, his silence was not golden. It was was because, I believe, Samson wanted people to think the power was his. I wouldn't be surprised, but what Samson's strength is what attracted the girls. We don't know that he was big and strong and bulky. We don't know that he was handsome. We do know that he was super strong. But it seems to me that he wants to own that and possess that as his... And he doesn't want to confuse the issue by making it clear this is God's doing and God's power and God's glory that's involved. So I'm simply saying to you, I'm not so sure the secret is a good one. Okay, where are we? Samson's secret. Should he have uh, kept it? I don't think so. Delilah's approach, you have to say, folks, she could use a course in subtlety. It... I mean, really, really, how, you have to say to yourself, how dumb can a guy be when somebody says, and it's already happened once, you know, Samson, tell me what the source of your strength is and what does somebody have to do to bind you up to humiliate you? Man, that is, now, the, here's where we get to what's interesting. I don't think that Samson is stupid. I think he'd have done well on an IQ test. I think he's foolish, and I think he's arrogant. My contention is Samson knew exactly what she was after. I mean, my back, he's a wanted man. He's got the, his name is in every post office in in the land. There's undoubtedly been a bounty on his head. It isn't that he doesn't know about those things. See, I think Samson thinks he is so good and he is so invincible, he can play with her on this point. I think that's what he's doing with the riddle. I think he is so sure that his riddle cannot be solved that he does this game with those 30 guys because he is going to make them look bad and they're going to make him look good. I think that's exactly what's going on here with Samson. He is not stupid. He has never suffered defeat. He knows that all he has to do is keep his hair on his head and they'll never touch him. Bind him up any which way. And when you look at those, those various things that he says, you know, if you, if you t- bind me up with seven fresh bowstrings, by the way, usually those are gut. And so that's a dead animal. Fresh means they're unclean. <laughs> he doesn't seem to have any qualms about that. But, you know, seven bowstrings. He loves it when she says, the Philistines are upon you. He's laughing away. He knew it was coming, I think. And then, of course, you got the new ropes. Folks, he's already been bound with new ropes. We read about that when the, when the people of Judah handed him over the Philistines. That wasn't going to work. 
but he liked to toy with it. But I think the, the third one is the one that, that you got to just say, he is toying with her. Look, folks, you can, women do a lot of things with men's hair. You know, they run their fingers through and they do all this stuff. How many times has your wife run your hair through the loom? <laughs> Come on, the loom. Weave it in the loom. And, and, and I think Samson, all the time Delilah's doing this, he just, his, his old tummy just, you know, going like this, and he's thinking, how dumb can she be? Does she really think that, that the secret is not to get my head caught in a loom? That's just ridiculous. But see, he, he loves the sport. He loves the risk. He loves the game. It's only when she finally puts the whammy on him that finally he spells it all out. So there's a progression in his confessions. He gives her a little more, a little more, a little more, never intending to tell her all. But finally, like his wife of times before, she prevails and he tells all. And so when I ask the question, why can't Samson see what she's doing? I think he does. I think he does see. And he thinks he's bigger and stronger. And he doesn't have to fear what she's about. How can he sleep through this? Well, there are all kinds of ways that one could, uh, that could answer that. It may be natural. Wine has a way of, uh, of doing things. I, I am not convinced at all that wine and alcohol was not a part of his uh, ritual with Delilah. But whatever it is, there are human explanations. And if those fall short, then it may be that God just put him to sleep and, and let it happen. It may also be that his haircut is not a Ewell Brenner haircut. Now, you know, I mean, don't you... You, we're thinking about this in our, in our terms. You know, you get the Burma shave out, you know, and you, and you rub it all over his head. And then you get this razor, this nice, you know, razor, and you just scrape it along his scalp. I don't know exactly how people shaved in those days, but folks, they didn't know Gillette. And so it may be that his hair is shorn in some way uh, that isn't a scrape across the scalp, but whatever it is, it seems to me it's God's, it's God's way now of not only bringing judgment and discipline upon him, but bringing about this final blow to the Philistines that's going to come. So, the poetic justice. He loses his strength in which he took pride. He's put in bonds. He's made a slave. And here's the guy who burnt up their grain crops. <laughs> I wonder if the Philistines said... We'll make you pay for that. You get to grind the grain now. He works in a mill. So if he were married and he'd come home to his wife and she said, how did it go? He'd have said, man, it was a really a grind today. It's bad, I know. Loss of sight. Don't you see that here is a man who all through our text sees a woman and wants her, right? It's with his eyes and in effect... Remember Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. He didn't. They did. God took away that thing which had been his stumbling block. And I would suggest to you that nobody saw things more clearly than Samson at the end of his life than before when he had his physical sight. And then it ends in verse 22 with that sort of strange verse. 
but his hair kept growing. Isn't that just, you know, you just dangle that out there because it's going to be the key to all that's coming to pass in Samson's revenge in verses 23 through 30. So it's going to be judgment day then for the Philistines. Uh, oh, I, I did want to just mention the Philistine blunders. Wouldn't you, if you were a Philistine, wouldn't you be checking the hair <laughs> on that boy? <laughs> if long hair was the secret to his success, man, I'd be shaving that guy all the time. But they're letting it grow. They keep him alive as a slave rather than to kill him as they had initially purposed earlier at Gaza. And then they, they uh, blind him, keep him around. It seems to me that those things were not a very good thing to do. And they have a victory celebration where they turn it into a worship service for Dagon. Now, I've got to tell you, if you know anything about Israel and Israel's God, that's going to set him off. And indeed, it does. So here comes Judgment Day for the Philistines. Not only has he been captured and put to work, but people are saying, you know, this is the kind of thing where we really need to give glory to our God, our God, Dagon. Because it's from him. Now, the irony of that is Dagon hasn't done a blooming thing. And we know from later times, when remember when the ark is stolen and brought into the temple of Dagon, that Dagon will fall on his face and break himself up on the threshold and whatever. Dagon's nobody to worry about. They were giving Dagon credit for what God was doing. And God never looks favorably on that. And so here they are. They're going to have a worship service. They're going to sacrifice to Dagon. They're going to give him the praise. And then they all get drunk. That's not, not a good thing to be doing. And it's in, I know it says when they're happy or whatever your translation is. Hey, folks, when they get crocked. Then they all say, bring on Samson. And you can just see it. It's a drunken orgy. And they're bringing him on, and now they want him to entertain them. Now, I, I can't tell you exactly what took place. Uh, and, it, you know, it could have been anything from just having him stand there. I doubt it. To, 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 to poking him uh, because he's blind and, and teasing him uh, and, and showing their superiority over him. I frankly think that he's standing before them naked. That's the way you humbled your enemy, is you, you removed their clothes. And, and again, it would be poetic because here's a guy who seemed to like to take his clothes off, <laughs> but not this time. And, and by the way, the word play uh, may well have that sense. Remember when Israel rose up to eat and drink and play, there is that, that pagan uh, nuance to that. And that was often a part of the heathen worship. So anyway, here they are in the midst of all this. They call for Samson. Samson's the entertainment. There's a full house. I would love to have had the fire marshal's report on that gathering. Now, I don't, we, don't, we don't know exactly what that building was like, but, but we do know that there were two central pillars that somehow uh, upheld that entire structure. We know that, that on the lower structure, it would have been like a joint session of Congress, right? Because you had all of the lords and the leaders of, of, of the Philistines gathered there. So there is this, this the, the, the city's elite, the powerful, the rulers of the city are all there. Joint session of Congress, since the president, the 
House of Representatives, the Senate, they'd all been there on the lower floor. On the upper floor, you now have the, the sort of peanut gallery, the nosebleed section, the spectator stands, 3,000 people on the roof. I don't know exactly. God could orchestrate that any way he wanted. But it seems to me that God orchestrated in just the right way that when those pillars were messed with, with that many people and that much weight, nobody's walking out of there alive. Don't you see that? God has orchestrated to do more damage to the Philistines in that, not just in terms of numbers, that too, but in terms of the powerful. If you were to take out, in effect, Washington, D.C. with a Samson, you've crippled a nation for how long? For a long time until they can recover and reestablish themselves and sort of governmentally get their act together. That's what God is bringing about. Samson strategically placed, and then he makes his prayer. By the way, I say in there, somebody finally cries out to God. Remember, that was the thing about this particular period where nobody's crying to God for help. Somebody does. Samson. Samson now cries out. He knows he needs help. And in a sense, he is the voice of Israel asking God to give him strength and to do damage. Now, a couple of things. The good news is he moves from the generic word Elohim which, by the way, is the same word the Philistines used to refer to their god, other than the specific name Dagon. They would use Elohim. It was sort of like Allah would be, I suppose, within Islam, a generic name that could be used across the lines of one god or the other. To Yahweh Adonai. I think, I think that's, that's a very critical distinction in terms of his last prayer. It's not there in the earlier prayers. It seems to me that Samson's finally come to say, God, you're in control. And to say Yahweh, he's talking now specifically about the God of Israel, the covenant-making God who is sovereign over all. That's the good news. The bad news is that he prays for revenge. (laughs) He prays for strength, but he prays for revenge for his two eyes. And what I would have to say is, this is not, this is not a nice, neat, uh, and they all lived happily ever after kind of an event. We're not meant to come away from this breathing a sigh of relief and saying, Samson's now got everything right. But he got enough right, my friends. He got enough right to know who God was. He got enough right to have faith in him, and he got enough right for the writer to the Hebrews to tell us he's in. And that's enough for me. Now, i got to tell you, he's riding that ragged edge for me. I would rather have had some great theological declaration. But it isn't bad. And it was good enough, uh, it seems. And God gave him the strength. Down came the house. And notice, there's a family reunion in his death. That last statement, uh, it talks about his family coming to get him, which is interesting because Mrs. Manoah was barren. And it seems to me that when Samson comes along, his brothers now come along, and the inference is that there may be others as well. 
So it seems to me that God has dealt with that. But there's a family reunion in death. Now there's finally that coming together again of Israelites, not just acting on their own, but, but drawing together, which I think may be significant. Now, conclusion. The real issue, I think, when we come to this text is whether we look at it in a man-centered way or a God-centered way. It, it, we would like for Samson to be the perfect example of how we ought to live our lives. That's just not going to be true. If you're looking to Samson for a hero, stop looking. God's the hero in this text. God is the hero. And it's only when we come to this text in a God-centered focus that we're going to see it the way we should. Now, when we come to Samson, there are words that Samson, there is something Samson has to say to us. One of them is a word of warning to believers about living in pursuit of the flesh. Romans chapter 8 says, those who have a mindset on the flesh, it's going to lead to death. So there is a great warning. And I would say, we could, if we had time, we could go down the line and say, if Samson eyes, Samson's eyes were giving him trouble, the word pornography comes to my mind. How many people are listening to my voice right now for whom that's a problem? And I've got to tell you, Samson's life ought to tell us that's got to be dealt with. So there is a word of warning for believers. There is also a word of warning for unbelievers. When those people come and they gather together and they're in this mood of hilarious celebration and they're drunker than skunks and they're praising their God, they're praising their God for bringing them peace and safety, right? They now are safe because Samson's in chains. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. While they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them. And I've got to tell you, if there's someone here who has never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you think you're safe without Jesus, you're not. And the worst thing to do is to realize too late that he was the solution for sin. So the good news I already, I already leaked out to you at the beginning of the message, and that is, from what I read in Hebrews, Samson ends up a person of faith. Not the kind that we're bragging about, not the kind <laughs> we want to tell all our friends about, but he's a guy who trusted in God, and we should see him in heaven. Now, when we focus on God, we ought to be encouraged, because God's purposes were absolutely perfectly fulfilled. God raised up Samson to begin deliverance from the Philistines. Now, he had been chipping away at the Philistine military and civilian population. He was a kind of a, a terrorist of sorts. But when he takes down that temple or that meeting place with all of those leaders, that is a huge blow to the Philistines that they will not soon forget or from which they will not quickly Recover. God's purposes were fulfilled in spite of Samson's sin. I know there are people who say, if you're not a clean vessel, God can't use you. Oh, yes, he can. The difference, and by the way, Paul talks about that. The difference is what you carry in it. <laughs> there are some vessels that are clean and you put, you know, like silver vessels and you, you put those on your dining table and you serve your turkey and whatever. And then there are those spittoon kinds of vessels. 
while you're carrying other stuff in those, they're still used. They're still used by God. But you'd far rather be the, uh, the silver vessel than the spittoon, I, I would recommend. Salvation is by God's grace, not law. If anybody ever comes to the Old Testament and says, Now, in the Old Testament, people were saved by law-keeping. And I don't know what you do with Samson. I don't know. I mean, this guy trampled all over it. But this New Testament tells us he was there, and he was there for one reason. Faith. Faith. Not his great performance. Not even a great life. Not even a fantastic ending. But he trusted God. That's what got him into the kingdom of God. Security, too, is by God's grace. We don't get saved by faith and then work like crazy to make sure we stay there. It's all about God and about God's grace. Now, think about this. Samson as a picture of Israel. Samson has a miraculous birth. He has a unique calling that God has set him apart to fulfill. That's exactly what's true of Israel. God speaks of Israel's uh, coming into being as a nation, as their birth. It's a miraculous birth in many ways, starting from the birth of Abraham, but it's a miraculous birth in terms of the Exodus, is it not? God does all of those plagues, defeats the, the, uh, the, the, the gods of the Egyptians, parts the Red Sea. It's a miraculous birth. Everything we read about Israel's beginnings is about God and his preservation. They were set apart by God in order to be a light for the Gentiles and to be God's uh, demonstration in the world of his relationship with his people, but so that other people could be drawn to him as well. They, like Samson, trampled all over it. And while it is still future, my friends, because they trampled upon their calling and the gifts of God, they too end up in chains and captivity until God in their captivity speaks loudly to them and they turn to him in repentance and faith. Samson is just a one-man Israel. And the beauty of it is, as crummy as he was, and as crummy as Israel is, as you see described in the book of Hosea, as lousy as he was, it was God who preserved his people because he made a covenant that he would not break. He was faithful to his purposes for them. And i got to tell you, in that sense, this is one of the most encouraging texts I could come to. Because I'm not going to read one of those... I don't read Pauline texts and then say, Oh, there go I. Man, I read Paul's text and I think, What is with him? Now, Peter, I can, I can get on his train any day. Put your foot in your mouth, do all the wrong things, I'm there. But you see, I think that it's an encouragement to Christians to know that it's about God. It's He who draws us to Himself. It's He who keeps us for Himself. It's He who remains faithful to His promises. Him! <laughs> That's good news. That's no excuse to sin. If you think this is a free pass to sin, you better see what happens in Samson's life. This is not the jollies for Samson. He'll pay a price, but he's going to be in heaven. 
And the last thing I'd simply say is, I fear, I, I fear it may be a picture of the church. A picture of the church in this sense, that we may be operating and going along just like Samson was, with our, with our worldly adopted ways of, of growing bigger, of, of whatever it is, fundraising, whatever it is that, that, that the world does that we think we need to do it their way, it is possible that someday we, like Samson, I'm talking about the church in America, it's possible that sometime we're going to wake up and realize the spirit left a long time ago. That is the most frightening thing to me. To think about people who are going their way, like Samson, thinking, I'll shake it off. That's all right. I'll just do what happens every other time. He didn't even know the Spirit of God had left him and, and, and left him to himself and his own devices. That is the most tragic thing I can imagine when you forsake God and you go with Canaanite methodologies. So I say to you, be encouraged. Be encouraged by Samson, not because he was so good, but because he was so bad, and he's going to be in heaven to greet us. Be warned by Samson, because sin always has a price. Those who walk the path of sin walk a thorny path. And if you're an unbeliever, be warned too, because the peace and safety that you may think you have may suddenly vaporize when our Lord Jesus Christ comes in the day of judgment. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Samson and, uh, and for the way in which he is instructive to us. Thank you for the way in which you demonstrate your faithfulness and the security that we have in you because you are a covenant-keeping God. May we trust in you and be obedient to you. May you keep us from a life in pursuit of the flesh. And those of us who are believers, the gifts that you had given to us, may we use them for your glory and your good and for the good of your people rather than to prostitute them for our own purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.